are. Another episode of Under the Bar podcast. Yes. Brought to you by Icon Performance Health. My name's Tom. With me, as always, is Rawdon. G'day, mate. Uh, g'day, Tom. Coach Hewitt, I like to call you. Now, this is a really big episode, mate, and I'm looking nice. forward to this one. We have our feature guest, Dr. John Chrysler. Yeah. From All Things Male, one of the world's leading authorities on testosterone therapy. That's it. Don't call it uh, testosterone replacement therapy. You've got to move with the times, Tom. Mm. Testosterone therapy, as he likes to uh, call it. But yeah, um, re- well, he's been on the hit list for a while. I mean, you saw a uh, webinar with uh, Nelson Virgil and a couple of other guys. Yep. And then we both agreed. It's uh, this guy uh, knows his shizzle. Yep. Let's get him on. Let's get him on. So uh, we'll talk to him. He knows all the ins and outs of uh, testosterone yep. and uh, what impact that has on the body. In the interview that we're going to have with him, which you'll hear in a second, he uh, goes through a raft of topics, Rawdon. But yeah. one of the, I guess one of the key things is a proper diagnosis because there are some significant problems with the testing method yeah. to, to get accurate testosterone levels because a man's testosterone can fluctuate yeah. at different points throughout the day. Yep. And then there's issues with the way that estrogen is measured and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. he will go into all the pros and cons of estrogen, yep. proper testing methods, you know, the real art of optimizing male hormones. Yeah. Because for him, he describes it, he's, he wants to bring his patient back to a balance where the body doesn't really know that there's yes. anything external coming in. It yeah, just yeah. Feels and actually, uh, right at the end of the interview, uh, some quite uh, groundbreaking uh, pharmacological intervention for testosterone um, therapy but without actually taking any testosterone so that was quite a yes. interesting to hear yes, that very, so very stick around for that before we get to him Rawdon a little bit of I dotting and T crossing yep the Under the Bar podcast you can mm. contact us at info at Under the Bar podcast you can nice. go to our website underthebarpodcast.com sign up there and join our online community yes uh, and thousands of them <laughs> thousands of them Tom and you'll be very well looked after yes, yes. Yeah, all sorts of uh, action over there leave a review on our iTunes page yep. go into the drawer to win yourself some true, true Celtic. Celtic and that's uh, the supplement the rock salt uh, cinnamon uh, ginger, ginger yep. squeeze a lemon that yep. uh, a lot of our clients uh, most of our clientele will do in the morning and you do yourself Yep, great way to start the day so we'll send out a pack of the true Celtic it's mm. a, a 30 pack serve you get up yep. in the morning chuck that in with your lime and warm water start the day nourish the adrenals detoxify yep, yep, yep. blah 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 so that's uh, free to the listeners if they how do they do that they go to the iTunes page they leave a review take mm-hmm. a screenshot of the review okay. email that with your address through to info at yep. underthebarpodcast.com and the best two will get a pack each episode. Or if it's from uh, uh, Q8 or something, we'll, we'll, we'll tell uh, Sean from Subito, it was, it was all Q8 this week. Uh, yes, yes. You better get those postage stamps at the ready. <laughs> um, okay, so that's the show. If you want to learn more about Rawdon, The Dubois mm-hmm. Method, Instagram uh, and Facebook. Yep. Uh, to sign up to my uh, newsletter and receive monthly mm. content programs and various other things, tomhewitt.com.au. Yeah, we're really uh, professional these days, Tom. It's um, it's surprising both you and I. <laughs> yes. 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 Rodden, it was uh, maybe five or six episodes back. We had Nelson Virgil on the line, yes. and um, old Nelson. You've been a, a part of his community for a period of time, and uh, I've yeah. been following him now. And we, we got onto a Google Hangout that he did with a few other people. And one of the other members on that Hangout was our next guest, yes. uh, Dr. John Chrysler. And uh, we both made note independently, let's get, uh, let's get, let's get, get Dr. On John stage. on the, yeah, on, yeah. On the show. Because his knowledge in this area of optimizing yes. men's health, the restoration and optimization of men's hormones yeah. to healthy levels is probably the most extensive that I've come across Yeah, and it would be great to get his perspective on things for the mm. listener and, and just where this industry is going because it mm. seems to be there's a growing awareness about it now but I'm, I'm curious as to whether that's because the industry is developing or because yeah. there is a growing, a growing problem mm. for people that need to be treated so yeah. I mean look we are doctors in our own right Tom <laughs> yeah. but it, it's occasionally it's great to actually get a, a medical professional on and yes. uh, really uh, you know Tell us how it is. So. so we have Dr. John Crystal on the line. He's from All Things Mail. You can go to allthingsmail.com and he has the All Things Mail Center for Men's Health over yep. there in the States and we really appreciate his time. Dr. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi guys, glad to be with you. Excellent. As we do with all of our guests, Doctor, I wouldn't mind just getting a bit of a background to you. I mean, I've obviously in good shape. I know you're... Yeah, tra- he's, uh, he's pretty buff, this yeah. one, uh, Tommy. Looks uh, after himself. A training individual, but how did your career develop and take you down the path that you've chosen? 
Well, I, I feel like it, it more chose me than than I chose it. Um, I was always interested in bodybuilding and had done anabolic steroids in my in my early adulthood. And um, then I decided at the 36 years old to go to college and then go to medical school. And then I wanted to take care of bodybuilders, not to prescribe them steroids, but to try to maintain their health along the way because I was so interested in it. And from there, um, I found the bodybuilders are willing to spend $2,000 a week on supplements, so we say, but not $100 a week on, on medical care. <laughs> so yeah, blood chemistry. <laughs> that career didn't go very far, but uh, really gave me a feeling for the hormones and also because I already knew what it felt like to be jacked up and I re- knew what it felt like to be very hypogonadal after crashing from a couple cycles. Yep. And so the guys sit across the desk from me, I, I know what they're feeling when they're mm. feeling that bad. I, I can really feel it. So. Um, I did my internship and frankly didn't enjoy traditional medical education very much. So after internship, I struck out on my own and as a true general practitioner and began studying men's health. I went to uh, an American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine conference and um, made new friends and found myself up on stage and uh, wrote a paper on testosterone replacement therapy that became pretty popular and had invented a a new protocol that's still commonly used in testosterone replacement therapy on the one of using HCG a couple of days a week. Yep. And um, I come up with that by, by the end of my last year of, um, of my first year of practice, I should say. And the next year I found myself on stage at the Royal College of Physicians in London talking about it. So it just really took off from there. And, wow. Uh, just made a lot of good friends in the industry and had a lot of exposure on the on the forums and so forth. And the, the exposure I've gotten on the forums really has taught me a lot about how this stuff works. I've heard the stories of so many thousands and thousands of men interacting with them and so forth. Yeah. And uh, that's allowed me to vastly increase my clinical experience. So yep. um, it just is what I think about all the time. I'm just very much into it and uh, really enjoy helping people with it. So. Awesome. Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, just before we get into the meat and nuts of all that, uh, what's your demographic at the moment? Is it. Uh, uh, do you still attract uh, some of those bodybuilders who uh, have perhaps gone down that route of using supplementation and then, uh, like you said, a, a hypogodonal uh, post to have the crash? Do you, uh, uh, do you attract some of those? And then obviously the, the aging population, I would assume you would uh, attract those uh, men as well? Yeah, sure. Not like I used to. Um, um, but I still get guys who, are, who have finished their last cycle and maybe they're not coming back from it. And so I still do post cycle therapy. I still manage the health of a few guys along the way while they're on. But uh, generally, the um, it's, it's more younger and younger men. We're seeing guys in their early 30s with full blown hypogonadism. I mean, they have all the symptoms and testosterone that's down, maybe sitting a hundred points off the bottom, so they're, they're bottom feeders, we call them, you know, they're feeding off the bottom for testosterone, we can't, can't leave them that way. No. And so uh, we're working on new protocols all the time. It's a very different hormone milieu in a young man, a man younger than 40 years old. And also legally, at least uh, here in the States, I, if, I'm, if I'm correct in my colleagues that I know in Australia, um, that uh, I think the laws are even more stringent. I yeah, think you know, guys yes. have a hard time. You don't get DHEA and so forth that we yeah. can buy over the counter over here. So it's more difficult to um, for the guys over here to take care of themselves. Yeah, I gather uh, it's, it's it's really quite challenging here. One of Tommy's clients couldn't really uh, have much resolution here, but reached out to a colleague or a friend of yours, Nelson. And um, Nelson, I mean, Tommy will tell the story, but uh, Nelson managed to get him, uh, help him and get him back on track. So. And Nelson's a great man, no question about it. He's helped people all over the world. He's a he's a kind, kind man, and mm. uh, I love him like a brother. Yeah. Well, much like you, John. I mean, he's on his mission in life. You know, he it's, yeah. it's basically sustained him, and that that's his passion as it is for you. I'm I'm really curious because it would appear that there is a growing population mm. of these well, bottom feeders, as you say, at a younger younger age. And I actually I train a, a GP, and we were talking about it last night, and I said we were going to interview you, and he said. Oh, that's great. Can you ask him, from his perspective, does he treat the number on the paper or is he symptoms. treating the symptoms? Because in Australia, we're quite, he was saying, paper. From, from a doctor's perspective, he finds it quite frustrating that he can't treat symptoms. He has to look at a piece of paper and treat numbers. Well, yeah, I'll just before we jump in there, John, I will say that, yeah, like uh, to qualify for hormone replacement therapy here, you have to go through an endocrinologist usually. And then um, you have to be under 
not not low bottom feeder, like under the actual reference range twice in uh, consecutive days, I think, in, 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 to actually qualify to look at getting um, hormone replacement therapy. So it is actually quite a, a tough process to um, for, for most mm. to get get them uh, help in that regard. Yeah. So are you treating symptoms or the number? Well, first place, this is this is the greatest single greatest question in our field of medicine. Um, and it's, 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 it's heartbreakingly unfortunate that, that it, it is, that is the environment there now because it's as important to understand what normal range is not as it is to understand what normal range is. I mean, they just, they pool all men and they bookend two standard deviations. So it includes all but the top two and a half percent and the bottom two and a half percent for all men and that's absolutely ridiculous because we are not the same. The problem when you apply traditional uh, science, epidemiology to numbers are that, that all men are not alike. Everyone has their own sweet spots for each hormone. There are men who live very well with a total testosterone of 400. There are men whose bodies are made to run at 1200. And so when you try to compress men into a monolithic creature, or females too, I should say, um, it just does not work. It's like trying to hit a moving target when you can't, with, with a stationary weapon. It's jumping all over the place. Dr. Eugene, the one and only uh, great Dr. Eugene Shippen wrote the uh, forward to my, to my book, and it really explains this better than, than I do, and that the, 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 the methods of science do not apply to the field of endocrinology um, there's a quantum nature to it, and that um, you can have numbers which are completely normal range, but you can have all the symptoms of hypogonadism. Mm -hmm. And so um, I am treating a living, breathing human being, not ink on a piece of paper. Beyond that, the hormone levels are fluctuating all the time anyway, so you really don't know where on that roller coaster you happen to catch the levels. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you need, say a guy's at naturally living at 1,200, for, that's where his normal testosterone is supposed to be, and he finds himself at 600. Well, he's still well within normal range, but he has the symptoms of low testosterone because now he only has half the testosterone his body was meant to, to run on by things like his um, particular metabolism, his enzyme levels, um, his androgen receptors, and, and so forth. You know, how fast he breaks down testosterone, how fast he excretes it in his urine. All those things, more influences than we'll ever know, play into it. So I don't see why we would apply um, why we would apply some, such a rigid standard when the normal range really means almost nothing. Okay. Um, Dr. Abraham Morgan Taylor was on stage at an age medical management conference several weeks ago where I gave a lecture. By the way, we'll be releasing my le lecture pretty soon on DVD when um, uh, Digivision gets it ready, and I think uh, I think some folks will like the things that um, they're in that lecture. But he said, you know, if, if we're not going to treat if we're not going to treat the symptoms of age then why don't we stop handing out reading glasses? Um, I've just had to start wearing reading glasses myself this last year. I tell you, it makes me feel pretty desperate when I can't read the label without putting glasses on. Yeah. So if we're not going to treat it, and Dr. Morgantale suggested that we no longer call it testosterone replacement therapy, we just call it testosterone therapy. Because yeah. testosterone is so good for treating so many illnesses. It's so good for type 2 diabetics. It's good if your bones, if you have osteoporosis or osteopenia, where your bones are being stripped and they're they're becoming brittle. Treats good for staving off dementia, depression, of course, the fifth deadly disease in the bunch of sexual dysfunction. Guys are just sure they're going to die if they don't get an erection when they wake up in the morning. Yeah. So um, in all these ways, we have other drugs which are synthetic and not normal to the body that we have no problem prescribing. So yeah. what is wrong with a, a hormone that is naturally produced inside the body? There's just a bias here. That makes no sense at all. Yes, yes. It's also the only field of the only field of medicine where the pharmacokinetics of the drug are, are not considered. That means, for instance, the half-life of the drug. You know, look how many guys out there if they get testosterone, they'll get one big shot every two or three weeks. Testosterone yeah. really lasts only about one week in your body. Yeah. So there really is no consideration for the the half-life of the drug we're prescribing testosterone. Where where did that ever? Why is this intervention on endocrinology? Why is it so different? than all other fields of medicine. It just makes no sense at all. There's no question that the influence of, of bodybuilders and so forth, as soon as as soon as the fact that it's a, a steroid molecule, just meaning that it's based upon cholesterol, uh, that word comes up, then then everybody gets their knickers in a bundle about it and they can't uh, they can't even think straight anymore. 
I don't know why that should be because it's really it, it's it's a unique area of medicine that's special, but it passes through the normal areas of medicine where we should be thinking about our health and happiness as first as well. So yeah, it's, it's very strange. Excellent uh, points you raised there, uh, John. Why don't we um, uh, tackle a couple of them? What are the symptoms that uh, that thirty-year-old individual? A. Why do you think the thirty-year-olds are coming in, or lower, younger and younger ages coming into uh, with low testosterone? And what sort of symptoms uh, for our listener? Uh, what sort of symptoms are they presenting with aside from, um, you know, like you mentioned, the libido uh, side of things? Uh, I guess there's quite a, a variety of symptoms that may manifest with the. Uh, lower than optimal testosterone for the individual? Probably in a 30-year-old, uh, we would see complaints, number one would be a complaint, a complaint of fatigue, and, and, and then brain fog. Um, the sexual dysfunction comes in as a red flag probably when they hit 40 or a little bit older, but has been my experience. But the, the sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, and even more so lack of libido, I mean, there's, there's a difference between not being able to do it and, and, and not caring that you can't do it. And beyond that, not caring that you don't care that you can't do it. <laughs> For instance, we put, we put patients on SSRIs, you know, on, on Paxil, yeah. and, and they lose their sexual desire. A, a guy who, who says to me, I don't feel my libido anymore, and I really miss it. That's a guy you can work with. But when the guy says, I've lost my sexual desire, and I don't care that I've lost my sexual desire, well, that's not what his partner is planning for for their lives together, and that's happen happens for instance with SSRIs. As a good example of SSRIs, look how look how dangerous they can be, and look how overprescribed they are. Yeah. Um, and we still hand them out like candy, but we have some this big stigma about a hormone that's already in our bodies. And it's very clear that when testosterone levels drop, a man becomes sick. When you let raise it back up again, he becomes healthy and happy again. So I just it's beyond me to understand why there why there should be a, an issue with restoring a man's health and happiness, especially when it's so important for, for his on-the-job performance. Uh, the yeah. stresses are going up in life, um, his family life. Yeah. Uh, there's not a guy out there who became successful who would tell you that, that he, he did it by quitting his work at five o'clock every day. Mm. <laughs> and you know, when do we, we they, they make us take testosterone levels in the morning. Well, when is it you need your testosterone? Uh, in the morning when you're getting the kids ready for school? No, it's in the evening. You go to the gym after work and maybe have, uh, have a chance for some romance with your partner. Yeah. So it's just it's just actually in every way we have our hands tied uh, by the conventional medical community, which for some strange reason mistreats um, our, our, our hormone levels. Yeah, fascinating. So the fatigue, the brain fog, typical things like, uh, you know, as you age, the, the, the losing muscle mass, the the visceral fat, uh, you know, those sorts of things, telltale signs as well, you know, even though you're training, eating well, the muscle mass is going, you're getting out of shape, even though you're, you know, you're sleeping and doing everything right, would that be uh, some of the things you'll see with the, the certainly with that 40, 40 year old demographic? Yeah, their, their motivation is disappearing, that's, that's the rough thing, and I've never seen a study that showed this, but I hear it all the time. Guys tell me that when we get their testosterone levels back up again, they just feel like eating better. Not just that, not not that they can go to the gym again and have a good workout again and get results again, but also they feel like they feel like eating their vegetables again. Yeah. I guess when your testosterone is low, you feel like sitting on the couch and eating potato chips all the time. But that really, <laughs> I hear that every single day from guys. Mm. Okay. So there's certain things obviously we can you can test with a blood test, but the actual effect of having the hormone on your mental state and the what you're willing to do in your life and the way yeah. you perceive the world must have a significant impact as well. Absolutely, they're not just great point. They're not they're not just sex hormones. They're neurohormones mm. as yeah. well. They're very very important for the functioning of the brain. Also, then to having adequate testosterone, estrogen is very important for the brain. So you have to have enough testosterone because the brain will make its own estrogen as it needs it. So why is it, John, that we get to 35 or whatever it is, and and there is this decline in our hormones? Is this naturally just what happens, or are there things in our environment now which are inducing an, an early onset of this? I don't think there's any question that that we're seeing um, increased assault on the, the male hormonal milieu from the environment. Uh, we're, we're moving the, the BPAs out of plastic finally, they're endocrine disruptors. By the way, these endocrine disruptors are, are all basically forms of estrogen, they're called xenoestrogens. Yeah. Pesticides, DDT is an estrogen. 
Okay. And we saw that you know how it take uh, we had to uh, move it out of the out of the uh, out of the industry, be out of the marketplace because it's disrupting you know the the, the shells of, of birds and so forth. Uh, we I just presented a couple studies in my in my last lecture uh, um, on how there is so much female sex hormone in dairy products in the states now that is turning little little boys into little girls and little girls into young women, wow. and we're seeing we're seeing sharp reductions. I should say a suppression of the HPTA, the testosterone-producing axis, by the addition of milk or increased milk in diets. And how many how many kids out there are drinking several glasses of milk every day? So we got young boys who are kind of becoming sissies, and we got young girls who are becoming women way too soon. We got things moving in the wrong direction there. And is that because of the way the milk is actually treated and the the process that goes through to get the milk from the cow to the table these days? Right, they have the in order to stimulate the milk production in the cow. Basically, they have to keep them in an estrogenic environment, and that milk, that estrogen, definitely ends up in the in the milk. By the way, growth hormone in dairy is no issue whatsoever. It it, it frustrates me that people who should know better and are speaking the truth, and we have to worry about antibiotics and we have to worry about estrogens. Growth hormone is no problem in milk whatsoever. You could drink a whole vial of human growth hormone or bovine growth hormone or IGF one in either case. And that would do nothing to you whatsoever because it'd be broken down in the stomach. So the people complain about growth hormone in milk really are, are way off base. But there's no question the antibiotics have an effect, and the estrogens have been shown with the proper testing have been shown to suppress young men's sexual maturation. Okay. So it's not just uh, testosterone; it's actually the whole endocrine system. It, it, it's you know what you call interventional endocrinology is exactly what you're doing. It's not just testosterone replacement therapy. Right, you have to think of the whole matrix of hormones. As my friend, the uh, the late Dr. Alan Mintz, who founded Cytogenics, called it a symphony. And when I'm talking to a patient on the phone, I'm simultaneously tracking four different hormone systems. When something goes up or something goes down, I have to consider the pathways in, in four different endocrine systems. And uh, that's that's it's kind of challenging by the end of the week. But that's really how you have to think about it. Um, and the fact that these hormones are naturally changing, and there's delays and so forth in, in uh, transitions between hormones as they're acted upon by different enzymes and how they're taken up by the body and how they're broken down and so forth. Um, um, you got to get used to walking on a slippery rock since industry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned estrogen there um, being a, uh, an important hormone as well for men. Uh, I think a lot of men, you know, and you mentioned the xenoestrogen is there, so we sort of get our back up and we want low estrogen, but. Um, let's talk about estrogen. I mean, because estrogen, obviously, uh, the men will make it through converting testosterone to estrogen by aromatase. Uh, but estrogen is, is crucial for libido, and, and there's, there's a ton of health benefits uh, that the estrogen provides for men, too, yeah? Yeah. Uh, my, my lecture that I just gave for AMMG in Orlando, Florida, uh, three weeks ago, um, I call it quantum inter intervention endocrinology. I'm comparing it loosely to quantum physics, where where things, where two supposedly or seemingly mutually exclusive events can both be true. In other words, something can be both a particle and a wave. Um, the, the same object can, can be simultaneously in two different places at the same time because basically it's, it's wave theories, probability theories. Yeah. Uh, in a similar way, um, there's, there's a real legitimate argument going on between really smart people about whether we should treat high estrogen or not. And actually, I'm, I'm pretty amazed that some of, some of my very talented, very intelligent colleagues, smarter than I am, are saying that we should not treat estrogen. Uh, they're, really, they're really misinterpreting the studies and really are not understanding. I think that in, they've con confused themselves by treating females. I, I treat basically only male patients. I, everybody tell you I don't know anything about women. Um, but <laughs> I, I, when I put the, the slide on the screen, it says, no one ever said we should lower estrogen too far. Yeah. And the studies that are against modulating estrogen all lower estrogen too far. Or it's an inappropriate application, or they're using too much of the medication. And like all areas of medicine, you have to know what you're doing and properly administer the, the, the medicines and the therapies, or you'll hurt the patient. There's no question that lowering estrogen too far is bad for your brain, it's bad for your cardiovascular system, it's bad for your blood, um, your bones, it's bad for your sexual function. Uh, uniquely, um, you know, high estrogen and low estrogen kind of have the same effects on sexuality and they dampen sexuality. Um, estrogen gets too high, guys feel wimpy and they're not, they're not 
they're not they're not the drive for sex. And when estrogen gets too low, they become they develop a very flat affect and they lose the romantic component of their sexual being. Wow. So their their bonding and their paramating decreases, and that's uh, that's not good for the relationships either. So we have to keep it somewhere along the way. And again, like testosterone, everybody has their own sweet spot. Yeah. And that's going to change as well. A big problem is that, um, and, and Nelson talks about this a lot, a big problem is that a lot of the estrogen testing out there is done with the laboratory methodology that's not valid for adult males. Yeah. Um, I have some friends, um, I don't know if Path Labs is still in business in, uh, in uh, Brisbane, but um, they're doing the liquid chromatography mass spectroscopy laboratory methodology. That is the only one that's accurate for adult males to test their estrogen. But the old testing, which uses the standard estrogen methodology of immunoassay, is not valid for adult males, which means you cannot draw any conclusions from it. And it tends to overestimate what the number is. All the time, um, the lab will run both tests. They'll run the, the methodology on the same sample that was taken at the same time, and the immunoassay methodology will show the estrogen high but the correct liquid chromatography mass spectroscopy methodology will show, for instance, at mid-range. So if a doctor is reading the estrogen from the wrong kind of assay, doesn't know to write, write the more stringent methodology, that means they think that the estrogen is higher than it actually is. So then they might apply an aramthase inhibitor to lower estrogen when they shouldn't have. Now they've tanked an estrogen that already was okay. Mm. Then you get the problems from estrogen. That's why the people are having problems with ramtase inhibitions because we're using the wrong testing methodology. Okay. Again, then, nobody ever said lower estrogen too far. And then, of course, the uh, you know the the testosterone therapy appears not to be successful for the individual. Uh, you know they don't have any resolution like they should have. It sounds like uh, you really need to be working with a, a, a doctor that, that that actually knows what they're doing and, yeah. and specific to men. Um, in regards to the testosterone therapy. Exactly. I can't resolve it. I, I resolve it in this way. Um, and I only run the correct methodology, but I do not treat elevated estrogen unless a gentleman has the symptoms of elevated estrogen. Yeah. Uh, water retention, nipple issues, you know, nipple pain, um, tenderness or whatever, um, the excess moodiness. Uh, sometimes they find themselves having a desire to buy shoes. <laughs> Uh, I know, sit down to pee when they go to the toilet, all, all these things, you know. <laughs> exactly. So what happens when you can't get the testing? Well, you actually have to treat the patient. And so like I teach my medical students, 80% um, of a diagnosis, especially in this field, is made through medical history. And so you have to talk to patients see how they're feeling. But a lot of times the guy doesn't realize that his estrogen is, is, is too high, just like he didn't realize his, his testosterone was too low before you talked to him. They, they just yeah. kind of slowly roll down the hill and they don't realize how bad they feel. Um, yeah. Kind of like, uh, like Frank Sinatra used to say, he felt sorry for people who didn't drink because when they got up in the morning, that's the best they're going to feel all day. <laughs> it's true. Uh, well, you know that sweet spot that you were talking about with, uh, with Eastern for... You know, uh, it vary from person to person, and testosterone that sweet spot, and the the guy at twelve hundred uh, will function poorly at six hundred, but the, and yet another person at six hundred will, you know, function perfectly. Um, we mutually have a colleague, uh, Brad Soper. Hi, Brad, because he often gets accused of uh, being uh, on performance enhancing drugs, and we actually ran, ran his blood chemistry, and his testosterone was actually. You know, nothing great. It was just in the middle of the reference range. I mean, probably towards the low middle of the reference range. Yet mm. he, you know, he walks around jacked and super strong and, and trains the house down, eats well, and, and does all the other eye dotting and t crossing. Why is there some individual? Like, what physiologically, what's happening yes. for, for for Brad? Like, is is it? Does he have more receptors? Do the receptors respond better to what? Uh, assuming the SHBG and albumin was was okay, I don't think they were elevated. So. Um, just your thoughts on that. Like, why, why does it vary greatly from person to person? Well, um, they talk about CAG repeats in the androgen receptor, that the more of them you have, the less active the receptor is. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, the guy who, who does very well, um, I'm, I'm impressed and, and happy for the fellow who does very well with a total testosterone of 400, 500, 600. And also keep in mind that I may have just happened to catch a sample in, in, a, in a moving target 
when he was at that level, yeah, passing up or having going up or going down. True, yeah. But um, you know, every, everybody's different. That's why you have to you have to treat the indi- individual patient. So it yeah. takes time to, to ask the right questions and get the right answers and, and figure out where you're going to go with it. So I guess it comes back to uh, how they're feeling and their symptoms. You know, if they're training well and and, and, and feeling great and their muscle mass is great and all the mental positivity, all the, all the things that you should have are good then you know they're fine on 600 it's a or like you said it wasn't actually 600 it was a yeah. uh, a fluctuating uh testosterone reading and in actual fact he's um you know much higher than that interesting right and, and conversely that's why we don't we don't treat guys guys will come in and say gee i tested my testosterone it came in at, at 600 and i want to be at the top of range that's why we don't treat that guy he has no symptoms <laughs> yeah because when we when we treat him we've disrupted the system the the factory line is in production and it's just in production, fine for him. Yes. Um, and we disrupt that that axis. Uh, it's coming out more and more. Back about 2004, it, it occurred to me um, in, in working with with bodybuilders, I started administering, you know, 100 units a day of HCG. And back then, everybody was using, you know, a thousand a day and up uh, of HCG. And and the bodybuilders were telling me, that basically to a man, they're telling me that they're feeling better. On 100 units of HCG a day, and I caught a lot of flack for that because people were saying that can't possibly work. I knew it was because the guys were telling me they're feeling better. Either they're or they didn't. They aren't. Um, you know that that burned out, edgy feeling after about about four or five weeks into a good cycle when you're when you're feeling kind of burned out and edgy and so forth. Uh, and yeah. they're feeling better. So I knew it was doing something to them. I referred back to my notes from basically two years earlier in medical school and the endocrinology, and there was an HCG promotes the conversion of cholesterol to pregnenolone way up way up in the pathways and now we know that that luteinizing hormone is necessary for for getting cholesterol from the outer to the inner membrane of the mitochondria which are the little power plants inside each of our cells so when you put a guy on testosterone if your luteinizing hormone goes down because the system recognizes it doesn't need to make testosterone anymore so pituitary gland stops producing luteinizing hormone to stimulate the testicles that luteinizing hormone has receptors all over the body, including in these mitochondria. And they wouldn't be there if there wasn't a reason for them. Yeah. So when you put a guy on testosterone, you're shutting down the, the factory. And 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 this has there's serious consequences down the line, which is why we shouldn't just be jacking guys up for no reason whatsoever. And if we do put guys on testosterone, we want to, we want to put them all that we can on HCG. We want to give them uh, uh, DHEA. Those, a lot of them, we give them pregnenolone. In other words, we insert different pieces in the in the pathways I call it back filling the pathways I started doing that in about 2004 and now some stuff has come out some good studies are coming out where they're starting to be recognized that yes maintaining those pathways is indeed very important I'm an osteopathic physician so the more natural approach is the better approach it's just the way I think about things mm. and so the guys I always want to get I got add ACG to every testosterone payment third protocol that I can again uh, DHA is very important sometimes pregnenolone just to get things working as possible, as best as possible, with the ultimate goal that maybe one day we'd be able to put a guy in testosterone placement therapy and almost have his body not know that he's on it. It would yeah. just seem that natural to him. See. Those are the patients that do that do the best. Mm. And so, John, what are the other lifestyle factors that we could implement that form the the platform for that picture that you're describing there, mm. where all the pathways and everything set up before you actually go into the process of the therapy? Are there significant things yeah. that we can if do? Someone's obese, they come in, they're not training, they don't sleep. Like, do you get all that stuff ship shape first? Or? Well, yeah, you got to decide what you're going to treat first, how many things you're going to treat first. You know, sleep is great. You know, a guy comes in with fatigues and I say, how, how much are you sleeping? It's four hours a night. I say, I think we have our answer. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're yeah. Not, hello. You know, you're not getting no wonder. You're supposed to be tired. By the way, you're supposed to be tired anyways. If you're not tired, you're not working hard enough. Yeah. yeah, you're not motivated. If you're not tired, you should work till you're, till you're very tired, and then get a good night's sleep. Um, anti-inflammation, hands down, is, is number one. Um, mm-hmm. Getting inflammation down the body, then that would that would all the things we do. You know, adding fish oil, make sure guys have zinc, um, eat their vegetables. It's, it's it's very interesting that you can't you can't achieve nominal health without adding supplements, but you achieve super health. By really pouring on the fruits and the vegetables, you can't get what you need out of fruits and vegetables, but you can't get super health from supplements. So it really is the backwards right. way most most people think about it. I tell the guy, look, if you're if you're not hungry enough to eat a carrot or an apple, you're not hungry. 
Yeah. So you probably shouldn't be shouldn't be eating, but just just getting that insulin down and getting rid of the high glycemic foods yeah. and not eating at night, late at night, is uh, in, in a very loose form of intermittent fasting is what I've been doing. Um, just just basically skipping that evening meal, that evening snack, is like night and day how I feel the next day with respect to inflammation. So you gotta get the inflammation down, and it's good for guys too. And that you, you know you tell them that you, you might have 50, 60, 70 pounds to lose. But within a few days of getting that inflammation down and you start peeing off all the water, the extra water, is that you're feeling better already. You may have you may dump eight pounds of water in the first few days of, of going on a lower glycemic diet, but you already feel much better. So you don't have to wait until you've lost fifty pounds to feel better. Mm. You feel better along the way. And if you screw up and pig out, you're gonna feel badly. So it's self reinforcing. And the guys the guys pick up on that really quick. I tell them, you know, don't don't have don't go on a diet. You don't don't count calories. Don't because they're already robbing Peter to pay Paul by by lunchtime. They're eating their dinner. Yeah. Instead, you know, have a diet. Have the things that you eat all the time, and have things that you eat much less. Like eat all the time, vegetables. All the vegetables you can get your hands on. Anti-inflammation. Keep your glycemic index down. Keep stay keep stay low on the breads and the pastas and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, they just feel so much better that um, it's in all the way around respect to diabetes and cancer reduction and cardiovascular disease risk reduction. It's all right there for you. What about in terms of training, John? Everyone who listens to this podcast is engaged in resistance training. We hear these things about lower repetitions and more sets, increasing testosterone yep. and that yep. kind of stuff. Is there any truth to the truth rumors? to that? Well, absolutely. Well, I tell you. Um, Start out to qualify myself. Um, I'm 58 years old. I have veins on my abs. I never diet when I'm hungry. I eat. Um, on March 23rd, just about two months ago, I had a massive heart attack that should have killed me. Really? And I had the uh, sufficient stamina to do my own CPR for over half an hour, and was able to escape <laughs> the heart attack without any damage to my heart. They found one little tiny area inside my right ventricle down the lining. That wasn't isn't reperfusing, but I'm I'm working on revascularizing that as we speak. Um, wow. But I just had that. I've been running five Ks. Uh, my uh, my girlfriend does them, so I do them too. And um, so I had the stand built up, and the way that I train allowed me when I had to bust some ass. Oops, yeah. didn't use that word. Wow. Um, I don't know how that works down there. Um, yeah, I um, I was able to keep myself alive by doing my own CPR. When I go to the gym, um, I just just tonight my legs are quivering right now from doing a full-on Nautilus leg workout that took me seven minutes tonight, and then I almost threw up. Um, <laughs> Good. Is that I train? I basically train nonstop when I get there. I talk to like I'm always chiding Carl and Nor, you know, or Superhuman Radio because he's still got this thing in his mind about all he's lifting all these heavy weights, and he keeps having surgeries. Uh, when you when you get older, you have to start training differently. And you have to find ways to make weights seem heavier. Yeah. So yeah. when I start at the gym, I it's basically nonstop action for me. I'll do I'll do a set of chin ups, a set of pull downs, a set of low pulley rows, and then pulls down to the front four sets nonstop for lats. Um, that's less than five minutes. I'm 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 done with lats. I do you know pre fatigue two sets for chest, two set sets for shoulders, one set for traps, Good. two sets for biceps, two sets for triceps. And a set of wrist curls. I'm down my upper body, but all awesome. the way through, I'm really uncomfortable because it's nonstop action. But yeah. I'm done in 22 or 24 minutes, yeah. and so I can leave my house, warm up, um, train, cool down, come home in, in an hour and 10 minutes. Beautiful. So people say you don't have time to train. You're just not training hard enough. Yeah, and I dare say working the uh, the cardiovascular system there would have helped when you had to uh, perform the uh, self CPR there. That obviously, yeah, the, the yeah the, in the ambulance, uh, yeah, I had that that awkward moment. Where you realize, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. I just yeah. got home. I just got done. I swam a I swam a quarter mile a day before nonstop with no no symptoms. That morning, I just got done with a butt kicking Nautilus leg workout. I mean, I really got it. So half an hour later, I sit down to pick up the phone to talk to my first patient. I thought I'm being stabbed in the back. Well, so I go down and get on my foam roller. You know, I think I'll just snap them. And sure enough, in osteopathic position, we expect there'd be problems near vertebrae right there. So I snip, popped a couple of vertebrae back. I started getting nauseous. And oh, this something is really wrong here. And I looked down the back of my hand. I started getting looked down the back of my hand. And my hands started getting getting damp. So I got a got a waste basket and unlocked the front door and laid down on the floor and called my best friend and said, hey, hang on a line here, man. It wasn't 10 seconds there. I said, make that call. So I went right wow. out and laid on the front porch. I sure went out and laid in the road. 
And uh, the ambulance pulls up, and they, they grabbed me. Couldn't believe that. I told them, gave my orders. So I was, I'm at a heart attack. I want morphine. I want aspirin. I want oxygen. Um, I want nitroglycerin. I want you to prep the cath lab for me. I'm having a heart attack. So <laughs> they, got me, they got me on tape in the ambulance. I'm, I, I could just feel what was going on. It's a, it was a right side. My right coronary artery was completely occluded. So the right side, I had a complete heart block for about half an hour. And um, so I'm in the ambulance, and I could just feel what to do. The right side actually lays next to your spine. The left side is towards the front. So, so what you're looking at, when you look at the heart from the front, you're actually looking at the left side of your heart. The right side lays next to your spine. That's why if you have a right side heart attack, you feel it in your spine. Yeah. There's sharp pain. You talk about in terms of, of a pressure pain. But it can be a sharp pain as well. So what happened, I could, I could feel that the blood was backing up in my body. So I knew it was right side. I was having a heart attack in the right side of my heart. So I lifted my feet up to help get the blood back to my heart. And I was expanding my chest out, alternating with, with contracting my abs down real hard. About 40 times a minute. I mean, I was, I was busting a sweat. Are you serious? Yeah, and in the ambulance, we got it on tape. The EMT is saying, stop that. You're wearing yourself out. And I'm going, okay. And I just kept doing it. He says, man, you got a 99 oxygen saturation on, the, on a nasal cannula. You don't need to do that. I'm like, right. So I kept on doing it because when I stopped, I felt worse. Yeah. And when I started back up again, I felt better. So the blood was backing up. So basically, your heart will, will contract as hard as it needs to. And that's a problem. When, you're, when something is wrong and you're having some kind of heart failure, your heart tries to work extra hard to overcome it. So by assisting the right side of my heart mechanically with the rest of my, the ancillary muscles I was using, I was allowing the right side of my heart to go without oxygen, and so I was able to survive the heart attack. Wow. So basically, they, they back up into the they back up into the stall of the hospital. I roll out the back of the ambulance. They throw me on a carpet. They take me to cath lab, and I got a radial um, access through my through my wrist instead of my groin, which makes all the difference in the world. And I tell you what, uh, even with the even with the Versed on board, which is 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 a um, am amnesic, it keeps you from remembering. You can feel it when that thing breaks loose, and it feels better than an orgasm when your right side, your heart, your heart reproduces. It was the best feeling in the world to me. Oh, wow! And go uh, up the stairs. I'm up in the uh, up in the cardiac intensive care unit. You know, there were really sick people up there. Yeah. That was not me. No. So like, the intensive care unit, cardiac intensive care unit nurse comes in. He says, "Doc, it freaks us out. You're standing looking at us. Get your ass back in bed." <laughs> so, yeah. So the cardiologist comes in that night and he says, uh, "We can't figure this out, but there's there's we, there's no wall motion irregularity in, in your heart. We can't figure this out, but but your heart, we can't find any damage in your heart." I said, "That's because I did CPR. I went CPR the whole time. I was pumping my blood mechanically." So um, he says to me, "I said, well, he says, well, you're okay. We'll cut you loose in the morning." I said, "Well, if I'm okay, why am I still here then?" He says, "Well, sometimes you know there's electrophysiology problems after the heart." Sure enough, I went into VTAC that night which is a fatal heart arrhythmia. So I'm in bed, and all of a sudden I felt this fluttering in my chest. It's really uncomfortable. I look up the screen. I'm, of course, I'm a doctor. I'm looking at the screen. I go, oh, my God, that's VTAC. The, the red lights are blinking. The arms are going off. And I can hear the, I can hear the uh, crash team come running down the hallway. And I just did a Valsalva maneuver and uh, basically forced my heart back into a normal science rhythm. So by the time they get in my room, they look up. I'm just sitting there smiling at them. <laughs> Stop VTAC. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, so well, it was actually was the most excellent venture. Then 10 o'clock the next morning, uh, they cut me loose. I came home. To, I had a stent in, and I have very large vessels in my heart. They said that's from lifting weights. So the very large vessels in my heart helped me. They put a four millimeter stent in my right coronary artery. They said the stent was going anyplace. The, the cardiologist is an old buddy of mine. He's a triathlete. So we're talking about training that night in my room. So I went, came home from the hospital. Buddy picked me up. I came home. I uh, changed my clothes. I went to the gym and ran 1.1 miles on a treadmill 30 hours after having a massive heart attack. Wow. Well, I guess that's a, 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 a thumbs up for training then. For uh, <laughs> I think we can conclude there. Yes, everyone should be trained. Well, that's absolutely the best story that's ever been told on this podcast, hands yeah, down. Yes. Very good. John, if you were an average person off the street and you went through that experience, you went to the, the hospital, is there every chance that you'd be prescribed some sort of statin or... And, you know, a, a medication to lower your Absolutely. cholesterol. Or, okay, so when we yeah. move into those areas, does that impact your testosterone? Well, uh, statin drugs are, are grossly overprescribed. Uh, there's no question that they help with um, thickening and stabilizing any plaques that you may have in your arteries. But my cholesterol is 159, and, and I eat lots of meat. And I eat a lot good saturated. I eat three eggs every day. I eat cheese. Um, I use coconut oil to saute my food in. 
You shouldn't start clean, you shouldn't heat your food by the way in olive oil because it, it, it becomes rancid, oxidizes. So I use yeah. coconut oil. Yeah. And um, um, there was no reason. There was, the only reason statin drugs really do anything for you is because they're anti-inflammatory drugs. But they damage the mitochondria, they damage the muscle satellite cells, and I just wasn't going to go on. He also wanted to put me on a beta blocker. Yeah. Uh, that's because your heart rate usually goes up after a heart attack, and if you have damage your heart, your heart wants to remodel or grow extra muscle, and that takes extra oxygen. You don't want to increase the oxygen demands of your heart. So I did not go on a beta blocker either, but I, I am on a drug eluding stint. Stint. So I'm I'm on uh, I'm fully anticoagulated. I tell you, so every day shaving is a real adventure, and uh, they let me take a shower. Being a doctor, I got special privileges in the hospital, so they actually took me down to the staff. Since I had company coming in that night to entertain in the hospital room, I needed a shower since I just left the gym. So they, they positioned a, a nurse there, and I took my shower and took my shave. And do not use the razor they use for shaving your pubes uh, on your face in the first place, and not when you've been fully anticoagulated after a heart attack, because I had blood seeping down my shirt from about six different spots in my face <laughs> the next morning. <laughs> Anyways. You have to grow a bead. Yeah. It's, it's like I'm doing plastic surgery on my face every day when I shave now. I hate it. But uh, I got, uh, what, what uh, nine and a half more months of, of uh, being on the anticoagulant that I can, okay. I can get off it. So, anyways. I mean, talking about uh, different uh, health concerns there, let's get back to testosterone. What are the, uh, okay, the individual uh, ticks the boxes, you're going to start the therapy. What sort of uh, issues uh, manifest? You mentioned estrogen, but for our listeners, what sort of uh, things, I mean, there's the, the thickness of the blood. I mean, there are a few things that can occur with uh, and have to be monitored. What sort of things are they, mate? Well, um I was uh, we had a very wonderful discussion in doc, Dr. Mark Gordon's uh, seminar, this traumatic brain injury seminar I attended in Orlando a couple of weeks ago. The doctors were talking. There a couple. There's a couple of doctors that are, are hematologists, and they're saying that the H and H really doesn't matter. It's the platelets that give you the problem. But we've agreed in medicine that if the hemoglobin in our, in our scale, at least here in the state, goes over 18, or the hematocrit goes over 55. We withdraw the testosterone replacement therapy because of a, 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 a supposition of, of, um, of an increased risk of, of inappropriate clotting in the blood. That doesn't actually happen. But we have to practice in a real world. And if you ever let the blood get too thick like that, then there's no question that guys go get blood, they feel better. So that's an important reason there. And also dumping iron is helpful. But if you ever had a guy have a heart attack and their H&H was over 18 and or 55, there's no question you'd be in court getting sued for it. So in a very real way, we have to do that to, to protect ourselves in our field. But it's been shown that testosterone replacement therapy really does not increase the risk of having a cardiovascular event uh, from inappropriate clotting. And it also decreases the risk from, from damage to endothelial lining. And, and basically, have, you have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease on testosterone replacement therapy than off. And the, the actual true studies, if you evaluate them properly, all prove that. So I did not go off my testosterone replacement therapy when I had a massive heart attack. It's important, I think, for me to... To walk the walk, and so that's um, that's okay. my position on that. Okay, so that's the hematocrit, the, th the thickening of the blood that can occur. Uh, estrogen, a right. uh, problem for everyone on testosterone, or only some people, or it comes back to that sweet spot. You just got to find that that. Uh, and why does it? Uh, is it just because there's more uh, available testosterone, so more of it converts? Like why does estrogen become right. a problem? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, definitely when you have more testosterone, you have more conversion. Um, uh, again, it's on a case-by-case basis. If a guy is having estrogenic problems, um, then I'll treat him not. And also, when you first put a guy on testosterone replacement therapy, it's basically putting him back into puberty. We all remember puberty. Sometimes our nipples hurt. Yeah. You know, sometimes our voice crackles. Although it seems to be always in the worst time when it's embarrassing, our voices are crackling. And that happens <laughs> a lot of guys. On. So I tell guys, kind of just ride it out for the first month. The guys are freaking out. They're not going to grow breasts in a month. Yeah. Just tell them, be cool, uh, we'll do some labs, we'll see, let things stabilize. It takes a while for the ripples to reach the end of the edge of the pond when you drop yeah. a, a pebble in. Yeah. So it takes a while for the, the medication to get deep into the tissues, it takes a while for sexual bioglobin to reestablish a new baseline. Um, and just changing hormone levels up or down can bring both positive and negative symptoms. So you just got to kind of ride it out the first month or so. Usually guys find they have a huge increase in libido and sense of well-being, and then after a couple of weeks it starts to die off a little bit. And you usually need to increase the dose and then look at the estrogen, which is what we do on every follow-up. Okay. 
And what sort of time frame there if, if our listeners do manage to uh, find a, a medical practitioner that's going to tackle um, potentially low testosterone? When, uh, how long does it, because uh, I've heard, you know, some individuals two to three months before they really feel uh, 100% better. Uh, is there a, a bit of a that initial bump up and then it sort of will even itself out over time? Like how long before you start seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, oftentimes it's, it's determined by the physician's schedule and that the more patients we have, the longer we've got to wait to get in to see us, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but it can take four months for sex from bioglobulin to completely uh, reestablish itself, its new, its new baseline. Uh, but I, I generally go put a guy on shots. If he's on twice per week injections, you can check him a little sooner because the uh, the stabilization occurs faster. But generally about about six weeks, okay. um, up six weeks to three months. I'd rather get you tuned up sooner than later, so I try to get you back in as soon as I can. Yeah. Okay. Great. And I'll just one more before Tommy jumps in. I'll jump in there. You mentioned the shots and. Uh, uh, for our listeners, what are the what are the different types of, of uh, administration of, yes. the, of the testosterone, and are some better than others? Well, my my favorite protocol of all would be a daily testosterone gel and a daily HCG shot. There's no question that that most closely mimics the hormones of a young man. That's what we're trying to do is establish the hormone milieu of an otherwise young, healthy, strong male. Yeah. But gel transdermals don't work for everyone. Or maybe you got kids in the house, or maybe you got a, a pregnant wife, or maybe you live in a very hot environment where you're going to be sweating it off and treating inside your clothing as, as opposed to the inside of your body. Yeah. So, uh, and some guys just don't absorb well. You got to look at a free T3 then to find out what, what's going on with that. But, so we're going to go to shots. Uh, all the rage now is, is doing subcutaneous injections. Um, I released a video several years ago on it where I'm injecting myself. Yeah, I was same. injecting the abdomen. I've really abandoned the front now because I'm, I'm, if I'm wearing a rash guard or something when I'm training about about every six or eight shots, I'll get a I'll get a lump in there. Guys just seem to be more likely to get get a uh, a, a uh, indurated tissue lump in the front. So I reach around the back, that little fat pad that sits on top of my buttocks in the back. Uh, that fat uh, seems to take the testosterone better. I do body sculpting, which is um, I don't do it anymore because it's fallen out of out of fashion. But uh, where you you know you basically liposuction, where you suck the fat out. And I tell you, the fat is very different in different parts of your body. Surprisingly, yeah. the fat that comes out of the love handles and that spot right on top of your cheeks in the back on either side is a much more light yellow, fluffy kind of fat, and it really seems to take the testosterone shot much better. So that's where I put it now. Okay, so subcutaneous, and then uh, the gels. Uh uh, your go-to patches as well. Uh, I don't really work with patches. About about one third of the guys will develop a contact dermatitis uh, with the patches, and mostly because I sent a guy home with a month worth of patches. He came back a month later, he was covered with them. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just they're just right. You know, if you go to the gym, you know, we actually had scrotal patches. Um, I don't know if you have them down there still, but um, and you have to shave them. It's very strange. You have, yeah, you know, applying them in the locker room just didn't go that that well. You have to dry the area with a dryer first, and so you're really blowing a blow dryer. It just this just doesn't yeah, work for yeah, people, yeah. and they produce a lot more DHT. So um, I'm not into pellets at all because they're the least physiologic of all the testosterone replacement therapy modalities. They don't produce a hormone profile that 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 relates to a normal man in any way, shape, or form. If a guy's going to go off on on safari or you know climb Mount Everest, that I guess that'd be fine. Yeah. But yeah. other than that, I, I don't do them. It's a, a billable office, ex, you know, experience. Um, you, you can you can charge for it. Um, that's nice. But um, they're just they're just not handy in any way, shape, or form. Other than that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. So aside from the actual uh, therapy from the from the doctor, John, I can walk into the supplement store and get the latest bottle of uh, Testo Max Five Thousand or something like that. Is there anything in the world of supplementation that can have any impact at all to uh, uh, testosterone levels? Um. I don't. I haven't seen anything that impressed me. No. Yeah. You got to remember that, that if, you, if you produce more, if you produce more testosterone, your body is going to sense it, and there's a feedback mechanism. Yeah. Mm. And so, even you know, changing sexual binding glycogen levels, basically your body will go right back to the original free testosterone level. So um, it's and it's a completely different thing managing the hormones of a guy that's not on testosterone placement therapy than is that you can. You can modulate sexual binding globin if you really want to do. There's no really no practical way to do that. It doesn't really, it doesn't really work in everyday practice. But um, once you seize control of the of the HBTA with testosterone replacement therapy, you have other options that you don't have when you're still um, subject to the negative feedback mechanisms. Yeah. So, 
And, and, and I guess for our um, listeners that, uh, I mean, it is a, a, a lifelong uh, prospect, isn't it? Yeah. You, you know, you're genuinely looking for uh, treatment and, and, and improved quality of life. It's not like, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind feeling a bit better for the next six months and then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stop the uh, testosterone therapy and, and, and go back to the, the way I was before. I mean, it's a... Once you start, that's it, because you're obviously going to suppress your natural production. So yeah. uh, once you... Well, uh, the studies show that basically a guy usually will come back to his, his baseline level, but that's why he came into you in the first place, because yeah, he yes. wasn't feeling well. Yes. Or you, you already ruled out you know, th- causes like be lowering his testosterone. So the guy's asking me, do I have to be on this for the rest of my life? I would say, no, you can always go back the way you used to feel. That usually ends that, that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Also, there, there are a lot of doctors out there who still are, and this is just a, a you know, a, a, hang, a holdover from the, the steroid guys. You know, they'll, they'll put guys on for three months and then take them off for a month. I just don't see any, any point yeah. in doing that. First place, they're, they're not recovering their system in that month anyways. If they're using HCG during that one month or, you know, three months out of the year or whatever, why not use it all the time? You, you need that, those luteinizing hormone yeah. receptors stimulate every day, which is why I love using, uh, you know, 100 units a day or 200 units every other day. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Well, John, apart from trying to perfect the uh, the perfect balance of all the pathways and the synergy, sweet the sweet spots for everyone, what's where do you see the future of this treatment and what are you working on? Um, well, always just gaining more clinical experience. It, it's it, it, at some point, it, it it's not so much a science anymore as it is an art, an art. and that's that's yeah. the way it is at the cutting edge. When when the top doctors get together at a conference and and we're talking privately, what we're asking each other is, what are you seeing that's working? Yeah. We may be talking about what are we doing with low-dose clomiphene, which is really the hot new topic. The top yeah. minds in the world right now are working with low-dose clomiphene. We're fascinated by it. We're getting some great results with it. Right now, what are you seeing? What's working for you? What did you try with this patient? Oh, I had this patient here. This example, this case study. That's what we're talking about, really. Is it just, just gaining this. I try this as patient at work. Maybe I'll try it with this patient. Because when you hear a doctor say that, you automatically think of, you're reminded of several patients that you didn't figure out along the way or something you could have done yeah. better with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just uh, before we move on from that one, uh, you mentioned the, the clomiphen, so that's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. I did hear you, I think, uh, with that podcast that we mentioned at the start with Nelson, I did hear you mention that, and uh, super low dose, I think it was like uh, 25 or, or 15, 12 and a half even milligrams a day or something, uh-huh. and yeah. uh, you were getting some nice uh, increase in um, in testosterone for those individuals, and, and essentially treating that uh, that hypogonadism. Uh, talk about that one. Like, how, how is that working? By what mechanism? Well, um, Dr. Eugene Shippen really is, is besides being the, the finest mind ever to live in our field. By the way, he's a, yeah. he's a, just amazing. His insight into hormones, um, his intuition. Uh, really, was the first to describe me that at the anterior pituitary, what you're trying to do is is to block estrogen. Because then the body interprets the low estrogen as meaning you don't have enough testosterone, so yeah. it increases luteinizing hormone to drive the testicles to produce more testosterone. Yeah, the selective yeah. estrogen receptor modulators, when they when they build the molecules, they, they assemble themselves in, in mirror images of themselves. So when you when you make clomiphene, you're making two enantiomers. You're taking one that's N-clomiphene, which is an estrogen blocker, but also makes its mirror images zooclomiphene, which is which actually is a, a weak form of estrogen. So what really happens if you have 50 milligrams of clomiphene is that you're given about 25 milligrams of estrogen blocker and about 25 milligrams of estrogen. Yeah. Now the reason why the dose has always been 50 milligrams is because when he decided to make that tablet, some guy just, they said, what size should we make? Some guy just said, well, 50 milligrams is a good dose, so that's what the tablets became, and that's what, what yeah. the doses became. Yeah. It was never found through any kind of scientific study what the best dose is. And by the way, it's produced for women. So most of the studies out there that you see problems, since, for instance, a whole one and a half percent have visual problems, is in women who are on 100 or 150 milligrams a day. So when we're giving 50 milligrams for a guy, the 25 milligrams are estrogen, I think, and this is what Dr. Shippen thinks, it's a, it's a half of that's an estrogen that's a problem. And, but there is benefits to it, so it has to be some there, no question about that. So when you cut it down to one quarter of a tablet a day or 12 and a half, now you're getting about, about six milligrams of estrogen and about six milligrams of estrogen blocker. That's enough estrogen blocker at the anterior pituitary block estrogen enough to drive testosterone production wow. without having enough estrogen to give the guy trouble. 
Mm-hmm. We think that's why the low dose therapies are working. But you, the guys are, guys, especially the you know, steroid guys and the self-appointed internet gurus and Bob yeah. all these guys that really don't understand it. Um, you know, they're 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 always talking about what happens when you get you know 100 or 150 milligrams, even 50 milligrams a day, or estrogen is not being managed, or because the half of that's an estrogen, sex hormone binding globulin can go up even with low dose clomiphene therapy, and estrogen should go up because you're making more testosterone, so naturally should, even though you always have to keep in mind that you are blocking some of that estrogen with the clomid that you're adding. Yeah. So um, basically, if the if the patient is managed properly. We're getting really good results in a lot of guys. It's not for everybody, but in a lot of guys, they can just take a capsule every day or every other day and have a testosterone come up. If you get a guy that's less than 40 years old, at least in the United States, what comes in, if you're not trying to, at least what we call a clomid challenge test or trying to stimulate his own system, that's mm. malpractice. And yes. if there's a bad outcome, you're going to sued for that. Yeah. So we have to we have to keep our medical license and do it, and, and we really the, the the body of a male under forty years old is plastic enough that you can usually this dynamic enough you can work with enough and get the guy back again, yeah. maybe save him having having ten or twenty years of shots because yeah. yes. after a while you know I'm talking about if a guy is fifty years old and he starts shots he's got fifty years to do shots if he's doing two shots a week that, that's that's a hundred shots a year. Yeah. That's a thousand holes in your body every ten years. Yes. So we're talking about five or six thousand holes in your body. Yeah. It really starts to add up. Definitely. With that treatment, have, have you finding that you have to use low dose uh, an astrazole, rheumatized inhibitor, or it doesn't yeah. elevate E2? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of times I do. Um, I don't know what, what we've been doing is uh, we've been we've been adding an astrazole right to the capsule. And also, okay. we're adding diendomethylene to it in order to help metabolize the estrogen. Also, it helps remove other to- toxins from your body. That's and also, deal. I've been working a lot with calcium deglucarate because both those help to manage. So we add some estrogen management in with the clomiphene. We're getting better results. Wow. Um, I, I just use it myself. I take uh, calcium deglucarate. I take 500 milligrams twice a day, and that rocketed my libido. All the things being, being the same, for some reason, that really made my libido go up. Wow. So I really believe in calcium decoupling. Excellent, excellent. Mm. Stimulating the system in its own natural way seems to yeah. be the by far the, the the best option. So if there are, what would your advice be for? I mean, I'm 35. Should yeah. I haven't had done a blood test in a while? Do I wait for symptoms or should I go and get a blood test and and just just see get on it, mate? Twice a week, you heard the man. <laughs> Two shots. If a you week. don't have symptoms, be happy. Yeah. And uh, enjoy your training. And and if if you get if you develop symptoms and they can come on over just a few months, yeah. um, then I'd worry about it. If not, but you know, it would be interesting to get baselines on you just just to see where we are. It'd yeah. be great to have a twenty-four hour urine so we can really find out how much testosterone you make in a day. Yeah. And have that because then later yeah. we know. If we had baselines on everyone, it would be wonderful when they came in because we could prove that they're not low for them. Yes. Um, that's that's yeah. a pipe dream, of course. That, that is interesting because I actually did think, um, just as a, a point of interest here, John, I actually thought Tom had uh, severely uh, low testosterone. It was about uh, five or six months ago. You're depressed, you know, walking around, dragging the heels, and it ended up just being where you were working <laughs> and you You've moved on, and now you're a new man, and your yes. libido's gone up, and everything else. So it's not always the blood chemistry, Tom. Sometimes no. it's your environment. It's a mindset. Well, this, maybe this is what you're doing, John, in the, in the quantum field. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very, very complicated subject. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. and a lot, a lot of other factors involved too. You know, guys come in, and, and you know, we get their testosterone levels up. Just because we get a guy's testosterone levels up doesn't mean he's going to be happy. We have guys who we get him to real nice levels, get his estrogen balance, so forth. He still doesn't have libido. It wasn't the sex hormones. Yeah. yeah. And that happens with testosterone. That happens with clomiphene. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. there's no, or, or maybe we've taken him too high. Um, by example, I was experimenting with with injectable DHEA for a while. Um, I really interested in DHEA and working with a lot. Um, and so I was having mixed in some testosterone, and and just the just by the concentration, um, I ended up dialing all the way down to six and a quarter milligrams injected per day, which is not very much. And it was causing extreme hypersexuality. I mean like <laughs> three, four, five times a day. I couldn't get my work done is all I was thinking about. Wow. Uh, yeah, and um, and also huge estrogenic conversion, which is a real surprise because I always thought that the estrogen from DHA was coming from first pass through the liver. But I was getting a lot of estrogenic conversion from just six and a quarter milligrams injected. But in order to get that six and a quarter milligrams, I had to take my testosterone because it's 100 milligram per ml concentration. I had to mix it that way. Um, I had to take my testosterone up to 175 milligrams a week, and that's too high for me. 
Okay. And then after my experiment with DHA ended, I dropped back down to my normal 70 milligrams subcutaneously twice a week or 150, 140 milligrams a week. That's the right dose for me. That's where I feel the best. Mm. So I feel way better at 140 milligrams a week than I did 175. So wow. guys always have to remember and try to get the patients around the forums to talk about it. But more is not better. Yeah. In yeah. fact, more can get in the way, probably because of overdrive the sympathetic nervous system, too much DHT, too much DHT, which is a lot of DHT, and so forth. But this just always, you know, more is better and harder and faster doesn't work with testosterone any more than it does with a game of golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Interesting. All right, John. How can people get in contact with you if they'd um, they'd like to, you know, explore uh, working with you? Well, my um, and I do do consults um, um, by a phone. I do advice only consults. Um, yep. Allthingsmail.com. You can contact uh, my emails. Uh, Patient care at allthingsmail.com goes to um, goes to my assistant. And um, and I do have probably I probably had uh, a couple dozen gentlemen in uh, in Australia I've helped over the years. Very good. Thank you for your time today, John. It's been really good. Uh, our listeners are are going to love that. Glad to be your help, guys. Thank you, John. Thanks so much. Talk to you again soon. See you, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, what about that, John Crisler? I'll tell you what, Rodden, pretty much everyone we get on this episode, whether we know it or not beforehand, has got some sort of uh, amazing life story. Uh, and there's a certain quality i guess that makes that individual someone that we want to get on the podcast in the first place but these are all high achievers and certainly what what uh, dr john's done in his life is uh fascinating and he's uh, you know once again he's on his mission you know yeah a bit like uh nelson very mission. much so. Yeah, mission. Oh, well, most of the guys that we get on the most podcast, the guys, they're podcast know. worthy. Yeah. But what about that? I mean, who the hell has a heart attack and uh, resuscitate or, or keeps their uh, uh, manipulating the, the the heart in the in the ambulance at uh, when told not to? It's like, yeah, yeah mate, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a doctor. I'm Trust a doctor. Me. Give me some morphine. Stat. You know, <laughs> ridiculous. But uh, quite a story. I think that's uh, fresh off the. Uh, I think they might uh, an exclusive. You exclusive. heard it here first. Heard it here first. So yeah. fascinating guy and. Um, and like anyone of our listeners, obviously they can get in contact with us and we can put them in touch with uh, both Nelson from an earlier episode. If anyone, any men or, or partners of men that, that you do feel have um, issues with, because uh, it is an epidemic and, um, uh, you know, it is quite life-changing. I myself obviously have experienced that as, as I've alluded to, but also uh, quite a few uh, clients that I've, I've worked with have uh, gone down that route and, mm. and um, they're apples and oranges you know their, their life is uh, vastly different now. yes there's a real imbalance between men and women mm. in the in the treatment yeah. of these concerns HRT, it's like yeah. every woman can get on 50 menopause there you go and i guess maybe that's in relation to the when women reach menopause there's a really dramatic shift in their hormone balance yeah. with men it's this silent killer yeah. that just just creeps in over time and lifestyle factors and toxicity and all yep. these are the things that uh, john referenced are causing greater and greater levels yeah. of lower testosterone yeah. and certainly what he was saying that, uh at the end there rod what was the the pharmacological product the the, the clomid or the clomiphene citrate clomiphene. low dose um so it's a selective estrogen receptor modulator so yep. it sort of um tells the body to increase e- estrogen and the way the body does that for men is increase testosterone so yep. um yeah, and you know you may have to use uh, some sort of estrogen inhibitor uh, with that, but yeah, quite a groundbreaking a, and exactly a tiny, it was like a, a twelve milligram tablet, yeah, tiny little tablet, fifth of a tablet. Like. So there he was. That's fascinating. Uh, that has been another episode of the podcast yep. uh, under the bar. Send us an email info at underthebarpodcast.com. Check out Rawdon at the Dubois Method Facebook and Instagram, and yep. check out me tomhewitt.com.au. Thank you. <laughs>